this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. Matt Singer is the editor and film critic of Screen Crush and a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. He won a Webby Award for his work on the Independent Film Channel's website. He's also the author of Marvel Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular. But he's here today to talk about his new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever, published by Putnam's. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And I have to say before we begin that this is the, that of, of, of all the titles you could have came up with a book for Siskel and Ebert, Opposable Thumbs is, is just brilliant. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I do like the title. Yeah, I might have I screwed it. everything else up, but uh, the title the title is good. I definitely like my title as well. <laughs> so let's hit the chair and go. As you quote David Letterman, you have a, you quote a sign in David Letterman's studio. Is Let's hit the chair and go. So let's do that. Your subtitle is How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. One big takeaway that I got from the book is that they changed movie criticism forever. So how do they do that? Well, I mean, that's a big chunk of the book, but the short version is that, you know, there were certainly many wonderful, brilliant film critics before Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, but um, they practiced a form of film criticism that was, you know, solitary. Uh, It was uh, one person writing, or there were a few TV film critics before Siskel and Ebert, so, you know, maybe they were one person speaking on camera or what have you. But that's what it was. It was really one person speaking, giving you their opinion. And what Siskel and Ebert really innovated, which it seems so simple now and it is so pervasive now, um, was the idea of taking that monologue and turning it into a dialogue and having it be two film critics, both with their own very strongly held opinions, um, sort of presenting their own opinion and then trying, but never quite succeeding to convince the other person that they were right and the other person was wrong. And that very simple uh, idea, which didn't really exist, at least in the world of film before them, I mean, that that one thing uh, changed film criticism forever. 
And I mean, there are other ways we could talk about as well, but I think that alone <laughs> was was a pretty enormous change to the world of film criticism. Yeah, it's what people call a paradigm shift. That's right. So um, not everybody believed that though, because we, you are obviously a great fan of theirs, as am I. Your book made me go down the YouTube rabbit hole of watching all these clips of Siskel and Ebert. But there were people, you say, this is from the book, quote, some hardcore cinephiles accused Siskel and Ebert of dumbing down the conversation around cinema. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like what was the objection to these two guys that, that they're universally loved? Well, I don't know that they're they're universally loved. Certainly, they weren't universally loved then. Even now, right. I, I'm not sure that they. I would call them that. They probably have a. Uh, maybe people look back on them very fondly now. But I mean, the main objection at the time was, I think, largely from people who didn't actually watch the show for the most part, was you know, um, by the early '80s was when they introduced you know their very famous thumb rating system which begat the whole two thumbs up thing which became really um pervasive in the world of movie advertising which was not necessarily something they had any control over per se although they also didn't necessarily object to it but other people outside the show maybe colleagues or other critics or other cineasts what have you um, some of them, do, you know, they were not a fan of that idea, of the idea of kind of, if not dumbing down, then like distilling criticism to this very binary yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down system. And, and you know, people wrote articles to that effect. Um, you know, there was very famous essays and film comment in the L.A. Times and a, and a lot of places uh, about how the show was ruining film criticism, which is, I think, today is kind of a really almost it's almost absurd to even consider the idea that this television show that was watched by millions of people and, you know, inspired so many people to to get interested in movies was ruining film criticism. But people people said it at the time. Um, I think, generally speaking, a lot of those complaints I, I really think they a lot of it was coming from people who either hadn't seen the show or didn't really watch the show or didn't like television in general, maybe. Um, and 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 we're just looking at the thumbs. And sure, that is a very simplistic way of judging a movie. But if you watched the actual show, you would see that the thumb ratings were the very end of the episode for a minute or two. And the rest of the show was a conversation. It was a debate, sometimes a very interesting, thought-provoking one that wasn't just, well, this is a good movie. Well, this is a bad movie. Okay, moving on. You know, the, 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 their conversations, um, while they could be kind of um, uh, superficial in some ways, I suppose, or sometimes a little catty, I guess, when they were fighting with one another, they could also get pretty highbrow, you know, like a, a Siskel and Ebert review could touch on uh, on religion, on spirituality, on morality, on politics, on so many different things beyond just whatever movie they were talking about. And so um, th that was the objection. But I do think that especially as uh, history has kind of borne out that uh, if anything was the death of, of film criticism, it certainly was not Siskel and Ebert, the television <laughs> show. Yeah. And the people that complained about them, of course, it seemed like I got the I got the impression from your book that the complainers didn't also they also didn't read their writing because Siskel Ebert's writing is very good, too, especially Roger Ebert's. That's right. Well, sure. I mean, that that is absolutely true. I mean, they were both very successful writers 
And yeah, Ebert won a Pulitzer for his film criticism. Um, but, you know, even Roger would say at the time, you know, when these complaints were made and sometimes he would, you know, like in some of these articles, he would go on the record and defend the show or in the case of the film comment essay that was written about it, he wrote a rebuttal essay in the very next issue of film comment. And he would, you know, he was the first to say like, we are not performing the same kind of criticism as film comment, a very good magazine that, uh, you know, I suppose nowadays, I, I don't think they've brought back the magazine at this point. I think it's, it's more of a newsletter uh, podcast. I think that the actual physical magazine was kind of discontinued a year or two ago, I guess. Um, but, you know, he would he would also defend the show at the same time and say, even if we're not doing that sort of film criticism, there's different kinds of film criticism and there's kinds of film criticism that are valuable that can be done on television. And I, I think he was absolutely right about that. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that, you know, uh, the the show kind of in addition to that whole dialogue element almost kind of invented and pioneered the idea of doing like video essays, which is now this whole art form unto itself on, uh, you know, especially on YouTube. Um, but when you take the basic idea of stuff like that, which is I'm going to take clips from a movie and I'm going to, you know, art talk over them or illustrate my points with them. That's basically what Siskel and Ebert was doing. It wasn't as refined or as in depth, but that's, that was another kind of innovation of their show was they um, provided clips from the movies and uh, especially early in the show, they were selecting all of their clips very specifically to kind of underscore their points, to emphasize what they were talking about. And so the show kind of did things that even a print film critic couldn't do. A print film critic can describe things very beautifully, very eloquently, very intelligently. But um, they can't say, look, watch this scene to see what I'm speaking about. Watch this scene for the lighting or the, the chemistry between the stars or the brilliance of the, the camera angle and how that speaks to the power dynamics between these two characters. Whereas uh, a TV show that shows clips can do things like that. And so I think uh, dismissing the show on the grounds, especially that it was ruining film criticism, I think is... It's pretty silly, but even just the idea that it wasn't valuable, I think, is also uh, not accurate as well. Your book made me realize, speaking of the clips, how much we take that for granted. Because now, like you just said, anyone with an internet connection who can work iMovie, in which you can learn in an afternoon, can make their own video essay. But that was fascinating in the book. Something I never realized was how they actually had to get the clips and go to theaters and borrow one of the reels and then promise to bring them back. I had no idea about that. Did that surprise you when you learned that in your research? I, I Certainly the ex like the extent to which yeah. um, that was a job, like that was a huge undertaking at the time. Right. Like, I, I think I may have known before uh, setting off to do the book that that had existed. But really, until you hear from the people who were doing it, you know, some of the producers, production staffers that I spoke to, and they all talk about in like agonizing detail about how miserable it was and how much work it was. It really underscores, like you said, you know, nowadays we take things like film clips and trailers and access to these movies in this way totally for granted because we can see them instantaneously. We don't even need a computer anymore. We can do it on our phone. We don't have to move a muscle to see these things. 
And it was a totally different world. We're talking about 50 years ago-ish when um, the show first started, a little under that. And they had to um, build these things. And that was not easy to do. Again, nothing was digital at the time. It was all still on film. So the films were physical film, physical celluloid, which... This is 35 millimeter in almost all cases. It's very heavy. It's cumbersome. Even if you take a, you know, one reel of 35 millimeter film, if you've never seen it, you know, you could Google this like can of 35 millimeter film or something like that. You'll see it's a giant heavy can. I've carried these things before and they're enormous. And now imagine doing that multiple times every week. You're doing it in Chicago, so, you know, eight months of the year, it's below zero and snowing while you're doing it. It's not easy. It's not, it's, it's, it is a chore, but, um, you know, like that speaks to the level of care um, that the show was made with and the level of, I would say, you know, like passion that the people who made it, not just Siskel and Ebert, but the people who made the show around them were very invested in it. They really believed in the show. They loved what they were doing and um, they really put a lot of effort into that show. It may seem like a very simple show in some ways, and in some ways it is, but especially back then, it was not an easy show to make. And um, I think, uh, yeah, like you said, it, it can be taken for granted now Now about that aspect of it. Yeah, you quote Siskel saying that, um, you know, we wanted to give the impression that the viewer was kind of eavesdropping on a couple of guys who like new movies and having a spontaneous discussion. And it seems like nothing would be more simple than we're going to put two guys in the in the fake balcony and have them talk go. But it, it was, you know, so much work and thought went into that to create that illusion, like they were making their own movie, right? Uh, uh, this movie about two guys talking about film. Right. Or, yeah, or a sitcom, which uh, was one of the, I think, insults that... One of the show's critics once uh, described it as like, you know, not film criticism, but a sitcom about two guys who uh, who lived in a movie theater, I think was I'm paraphrasing. But that was kind of the gist of it, which is uh, funny, because at one point there was almost a, a sitcom made about Siskel and Ebert. They wanted to do one um, and it never happened. But uh, it was almost, <laughs> he was kind of closer to the truth um, than he realized. But yeah, it. it the show looked very simple and very effortless. Uh, by the time it got, you know, they got the hang of it. At first, it did not look effortless. At the time, it looked effortful. It looked like very hard because it was very hard and they were pretty miserable making it. But by the time they got the hang of it, yes, it looked very simple. But um, behind the scenes, it was it was a lot of effort and a lot of work to to make it seem that simple and, and flow that easily. Yeah. Because I remember as a kid watching it, and it's, there was nothing, it looked like there was nothing planned about it. It seemed like it was the most spontaneous, natural thing in the world. But as you point out, what their first iteration was called uh, Opening Soon at a Theater Near You, like they kind of had to grow into it. And they were very awkward at first. And they didn't really know how to like do this thing that that seems to us so simple. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, the the, the very first iteration, the pilot, the early years of the show... Um, which you can find some of it on on YouTube and you can watch. I mean, it is kind of staggering how rough it was in the beginning. I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable when you watch those early episodes that the show lasted for about, you know, 25 years, really, that uh, it's kind of remarkable. It lasted 25 episodes, really, when you watch some of those early ones, because it, they are really rough and they're awkward and stilted and the conversations are not exciting and dynamic and both gene and roger 
are not very comfortable and they're awkward and they're, you know, stammering and they're sitting really weirdly in their seats. It's like every single aspect of it that could feel unnatural feels awkward and unnatural. And yeah, I guess you could say that all the work went into making it feel natural. Like, yes, once, you know, they really got cooking, it did look like it was effortless and spontaneous and they really did um that's exactly what they aimed for eventually was that spontaneous off the cuff first take energy that was what they wanted and that because they felt like the show was most effective that way that when it really felt like you know to that uh, quote you mentioned from gene like that it really was like these two passionate knowledgeable guys just kind of shooting the breeze and going back and forth and you're kind of the third person in the balcony with them. They they felt like that was the the way that the show worked best. Uh, the hard part was making it work that way and getting to the point where both of them were that comfortable and were able to kind of go back and forth that way. It it it, it was not uh, you know, some people have asked me like was it did were they this good right away or were they an overnight success and it's like anything but. It's the total opposite. And again, if you go you know, go down one a YouTube rabbit hole uh, and start with the early episodes. You'll see that uh, they were they, it was a little rough in the beginning. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I did. Um, let's go back in time a little bit and let's talk about the their, their newspaper lives and kind of what brought them together. So let's go through through both of the guys. I want to I want to ask you about what brought each of them to their job as the house critic in a Chicago paper. All right. So let, let's start with Gene Siskel. Well, Gene Siskel, you know, I mean, the interesting thing about Gene and Roger as these kind of uh, film critics who have kind of become synonymous with film criticism to a lot of people. Like when you ask them to name a film critic, I feel like even today, most people, certainly older people, you know, uh, would say, oh, Siskel and Ebert, um, which is sort of interesting because they both passed away so long ago and uh, neither one is still around. But Gene and Roger, both of them, neither one you know, neither one had a Siskel and Ebert to grow up watching. Neither one aspired to be film critics uh, as kids. You know, the way that I did watching their show made me go, I would love to. That seems like the greatest job in the world. Um, they kind of just grew up like most people liking movies, but certainly not going, this is my vocation. I am going to do this as a career. And um, Roger did kind of um, realize pretty early on that he was a good writer and he fell in love with journalism. 
But uh, Siskel didn't even kind of have that in his back pocket until much later. He really discovered all of that stuff um, when he was in the army, really. Um, and they sort of gave him a choice. Well, you can either drive a truck or you can go work on the like army, you know, the paper or whatever, whatever they were, you know, whatever internal publication they were working on at the fort where he was stationed. And he said, I'll take the journalism job. And that was where he got sort of his uh, his feet wet. And he that's when he fell in love with it. And so when he got out of the army, he went back to Chicago where he was from and he was like, I'm going to get a job. And he just according to the stories that he told um, and seemingly backed up really by what happened. He, he he just walked into the Chicago Tribune off the street with a resume and he got a job. Now, he didn't start as the film critic, obviously. Uh, he got a job in the like the neighborhood news section at first. And what happened was he was there for a little while. And while he was working there, the the film critic, this guy named Clifford Terry, decided he was going to take a sabbatical to go do a fellowship at Harvard. And the Tribune's original idea was, well, we're going to, uh, you know, he'll be back in a year or whatever. So in the meantime, we'll just have whoever review the movies, whoever's available. Oh, this this guy, you know, Joe, he, you don't have an assignment this week. Congratulations. You're the movie critic this week. Uh, you know, and they would just kind of rotate and have multiple people do it. And uh, Gene got wind of this idea and said, I could do that job. I like movies. And he had, I guess, written a few little pieces here and there about you know, movie related stuff for the paper. And so what he did was he wrote a letter to the editor of that se of the art section or whoever was in charge of the film critic position and said, your idea is not going to work. It's going to put the paper at a disadvantage because the, all the other papers in Chicago have a regular film critic and we won't. And you should give me the job. And he like slipped it under the editor's door, went home for the night, assumed he wouldn't hear anything. But when he came back in the next day, they called him into a meeting and said, all right, You've got the job, and that was it. And when Clifford Terry came back from his, uh, from his um, his sabbatical or his fellowship, uh, Siskel kept the job. He kept it for uh, a long, long time. He did eventually kind of get sort of quasi demoted or kind of pushed into like more of a columnist position. But he was with the paper the rest of his life, and the story of him like writing a letter and de and demanding they give him the job sounds fanciful, but. Um, you know, it, it's, it's legit. He, the, you know, years later, someone at the paper went into Siskel's personnel file and in the, in the personnel file was the letter he had written. They had saved it and put it in his personnel file. And 20 something years later, they found the, the letter and presented it to him. And he was like, you know, after all this time, I actually thought maybe I had made up the story because it's so ridiculous, but here it is. Here's the proof that I really did it. So that was how Siskel got the job. Wow. And now how about Ebert? How did he how did he end up, you know, kind of as Sissel's counterpart before they met each other? Right. Well, again, e you know, Ebert did not grow up dreaming of film criticism, um, but had a lot more experience as a journalist. He had uh, worked for his local, you know, uh, the local newspaper in Urbana when he was still in high school. This is in like downstate Illinois, not in Chicago. And then he was, you know, he worked his way up at the Daily Illini when he went to the University of Illinois. He was the editor of the entire paper his senior year. So he was, you know, he really, he was like sort of a, a, a natural from the get-go for journalism. But he always thought, you know, I would, he would become maybe a novelist, maybe a professor, an English professor. 
Um, and he was actually studying in Chicago at the University of Chicago, trying to get his PhD and just wanted to earn money while he was doing that and was able uh, through some of all of that journalism work. He was kind of able to get his foot in the door at the Sun Times and uh, got an interview and convinced them to give him a, a job writing again, not as the film critic, just kind of doing various pieces there while he was also going to school. And the way he got the film critic job there was, in, in the case of the Sun-Times, there was also a film critic. This was, I believe, a woman by the name of Eleanor Keene, who was older and decided to retire. And so the Sun-Times needed a new film critic. And the, I believe, the local publicist uh, in Chicago who, uh, like, repped Warner Brothers, I'm going to say, um, had seen some of the pieces that Ebert had written for the Sun-Times about movies he might have covered like a Warner Brothers junket, something like that. And the publicist liked what he had written and told the editor, you know, you should give uh, that guy the job. He's pretty good. Uh, he was also very young at the time, which helped because nowadays you go, well, uh, you know, a major metropolitan newspaper. I mean, they might not even have a film critic in this day and age, but if they did, they would probably want someone with a lot of experience, someone who had written for other publications of renown and esteem, um, but at the time there was, you know, there was this wave of, um, movies by young filmmakers and the audience for movies was very young. Again, it's the late sixties, the counterculture movies are very hip. And so like being an old established critic was almost a negative at that time. And Ebert was something like 23, 24, something like that. He's absurdly young, but incredibly talented. And so that actually helped him. And that was it. He got the job and, like Siskel, he was at his paper pretty much until the very, very end of his life as well. And he never lost the film critic gig. Um, you know, sometimes with his health struggles, he might have had to not write for a little while, but he was writing reviews for the Sun-Times literally until a few days before he, he passed away. So, yeah, he was there for this was 67. He got the job and then he passed away in the early 2010s. So it's all a really long stretch of writing hundreds of reviews every, every single year. Wow. So before they did opening soon at a theater near you, before this idea was, was hatched to bring these guys together on TV, you point out that each of these guys knew well about the other guy. They each knew about the other's presence. And I got the impression reading the book, they were kind of like circling around each other, like sumo wrestlers or something. Like what, what was, what were their opinions of each other before they met? And then we'll talk about how the relationship kind of developed as they, as they went on with the show. Well, their opinions uh, before they met, well, before they worked together, you could right, say, okay, was that right. they, they hated each other. Right. They really strongly <laughs> disliked each other. You know, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe their lack of a relationship. Uh, because again, we're talking, Ebert gets his job uh, as the Sun-Times film critic in 67. Siskel gets his job at the Tribune in 69. Um, and then the show starts in 1975 is when the first pilot is made. So that's a, you know, a six year period where they're, you know, basically the two film critics at the two biggest papers in Chicago, they're direct rivals. Um, but Ebert always said like in that period that they never spoke, they never had a significant conversation, but they obviously knew who each other was and they viewed each other as these sort of, you know, mortal enemies I, I, I kind of liken it to like if you go to, you know, if you've ever been to a party and there was someone there 
who, you know, like maybe dated someone you dated or, you know, like picked a fight with a friend of yours. So you don't really like have a relationship with them, but you don't like them. And you spend the party kind of eyeing them from across the room without actually exchanging words. So there's this unspoken uh, tension, if not outright hatred, like that was how they existed. They would see each other at screenings, at events, but they would just kind of like maybe politely nod or not even do that and eye each other suspiciously and then go about their business, talk to other people. They did not like each other. They saw each other as their direct competition um, because they were both young, both very ambitious, both very talented. And yeah, and, and, and you know, there is this kind of uh, ingrained... Uh, culture, especially back then in Chicago, of newspapers, you know, being these, you know, real heated rivalries. And so they kind of saw their relationship as an extension of that. Um, that did slowly change over time once they started doing the show. But that is the energy they brought into those very early episodes. Um, you know, it's it's worth noting. It's not like Roger Ebert and or Gene Siskel had the idea for this show. It's not like one of them said, I have a great idea for this TV show where I will be the host and Gene or Roger will be my co-host and we will talk about movies. Um, and that's important because if either one of them had the idea, the other one, I guarantee you, would not have been the co-host because neither one would have wanted to work with the other. The only reason they wound up together is because someone else came up with the show and thought they would make a good team. Uh, they did not necessarily agree with that. They just wanted the gigs them, you know, separately, and so they were sort of forced to work together. Yeah, and as you point out, they argued about so many things. Things had to be decided by coin tosses. I love the part where you talk about how is it Siskel and Ebert or Ebert and Siskel, and and you make the point that somebody says no, it sounds better. Just it's Siskel and Ebert, and I and I remember reading your book and saying out loud, okay, let me try this. Ebert and Siskel, no, it's Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, not surprisingly, that was uh, Gene who said right. that. It said it sounded better that way. I don't think uh, Roger would have agreed or said that, but uh, that was part of the argument that uh, Siskel made. Yes, it just sounds it just sounds better. Yeah. So, so the the show gets traction. You know, then it gets retitled Sneak Previews. Then it's at the movies. Then it becomes Siskel and Ebert and the movies. The audience grows. So, how do these guys respond to their success? Maybe their unexpected success. And, you know, how does that start to maybe cool, cool things down in their relationship? Well, I, I do think that uh, the success certainly helped the relationship. I mean, these guys went, you know, from, you know, they were well paid uh, by the standards of being, you know, newspaper film critics. But, um, you know, doing the show, especially once it went into syndication um, in the early 80s, they started making a lot of money, you know, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars every year doing the show. And so I, that'll have a tendency to uh, smooth over some wrinkles in a relationship. If if that relationship is the direct, uh, you know, the re direct result of that relationship is making lots and lots of, of money. And they did come to realize um, that while they did always think of themselves as very good critics unto themselves as solo critics they didn't ever really think that they needed the other guy i suppose they did recognize that as a duo as a team they were very successful and they did over time you know come to respect one another uh maybe begrudgingly at times 
Um, they never really became like buddies. They never became best pals. Um, you know, Roger's widow, uh, Chaz told me, you know, like they, after, after she and Roger got married, which wasn't until I believe like 1990, somewhere around there, you know, like they never really socialized before that. After that, they started to socialize maybe a little bit. They would go out, you know, Roger, Gene and their respective wives might go out to a dinner or something like that. Um, but they were never like the type to like, you know, like if you imagine like, well, that's a wrap on this episode of Siskel and Ebert, you know, let's go down to uh, Portillo's and get some dogs or something. That was not ever their relationship. But they did sort of speak about over time how they did come to kind of appreciate one another and maybe even kind of love one another in a kind of begrudging sibling rivalry sort of relationship where, you know, I have two uh, young daughters and I definitely see aspects of that sort of relationship in them, you know, where you love this person, but also no one on earth can piss you off more than this person. And they know all the ways to get under your skin and they know all the things to say that will immediately drive you insane. But, you know, when you're when when the two of you are, are in sync and working together, like a, a certain kind of magic can happen. It's just that also a certain kind of <laughs> dark magic, I guess, can also happen when the stars don't align in, in that way. Yeah. I love the fact that your book does not have an aw shucks sentimental after school special moment to it where they look at each other like, you know, you know, Gene, I was wrong about you. Like you totally get the sense that no, they had a working relationship and that a lot of times when you put professionals together, if they hate each other, it'll be a disaster. Sometimes if two professionals collaborate on something and they're, and they have to love fest, it doesn't work either because they're afraid to be critical of each other. But I think you point out that they kind of struck this really good medium where, where they, where they did good work together and the work was important. That's right. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And yes, I mean, you can compare this to, um, you know, how movies are made. Sometimes, you know, you hear about uh, a set being nightmarish and the actors don't get along and the director was out of his mind and, um, you know, the studio had to come in and the editing and this and that. And then you see the movie and it's a masterpiece. And other times you hear, oh, well, this was this was my best experience working on a movie. I loved working with the director. I loved my co-stars. We had an amazing time filming in the Caribbean for six months. And then the movie comes out and it's Jaws the Revenge or whatever it is. Like, you know, a um, harmonious set does not always equal a, 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 a productive set, let's say. And yeah, sometimes um, a little bit of, of competition um, is is good, and it certainly was good for uh, Siskel and Ebert the show and Siskel and Ebert the men, and they always said that. I mean, uh, Gene Siskel in particular was a, a, a vocal believer in, like, the power of competition, and he always thought that competition makes people better, and he always would say that that's part of the reason that the show succeeded, was that every single week, even after they started getting along better, they never lost that competitive spirit um, and that idea of they were going to, you know, uh, they were going to beat the other guy, even though they almost never would give an inch in their reviews and or, you know, agree when they disagreed, agree that, oh, that's a good point. You know, you didn't hear that phrase. That's a good point. That didn't come up all that often. They might say it once in a while. 
but it wasn't the type of show where someone would say something and then they would say, that's a really good point, Gene. It's more likely that they would, you know, you're more likely to find an episode where they give the same thumbs up or down rating, but disagree about why. Like that's much more common was for them to have wildly different reasons for the same uh, opinion or at least the same vote. Yeah, a friend of mine and I like to tease each other. We say, "Um, yeah, you you might like the movie, but you don't like it for the right reasons." <laughs> I mean that. Yeah, that could be the Cisco and Eber motto. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's... movie people are like. I mean, that's yeah, just what absolutely. they're like. So you said about let's let's talk a little about the the what you said about Siskel and competition about about what they did really well. Your book maybe made me think about what made the show successful. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was authenticity, was whether even if it was feigned, right? But like. The, Maybe the set was feigned, but like they were very authentic in what they believed in, in their arguments, right? And you have that line, even when they agreed about whether a film was good, they sometimes vehemently agreed, disagreed about why it was good. And that, you know, Ebert says, it's not what a movie's about, it's how it's about, right? There's also a part where you talk about how they weren't really arguing about the film, they were arguing about the other guy's reaction to the film. And when I read that, I'm like, that's exactly what it is, right? We're not going to argue about the movie, we're going to argue about your reaction to it. So this desire for authenticity, can you speak about that? Like, and and how they chase that? And do you think that's like the the um the thing that made the show have so such a you know staying power? Yeah, and um, I do think that that was very uh, crucial to the success of the show. And again, that was one of the things that they really uh, – that was very deliberate. I mean, again, like the early days of the show, when it was kind of so rough, one of the reasons it was so rough was they were um, being asked to – basically almost like plan the arguments in a way. You know, they would have note cards with bullet points on them, you know, things that they were expected to say, or they would do multiple takes of of debates, you know. They would uh, do it, and then if somebody flubbed something, they would do it again, and they would, okay, well, this time, try to hit this point a little more clearly, or can you kind of uh, say this a little more concisely, or whatever it might be. And as a result, the even when they got it right, quote unquote, the end result felt a little stiff and a little canned and inauthentic because it wasn't like two people shooting the breeze, you know, and you being the third person, you felt like you were kind of watching almost like a, a, a canned debate, you know, like somebody or people reading from scripted remarks, which, you know, the real appeal of Siskel and Ebert was that unscripted, natural, authentic feeling. And that they uh, believe that the turning point for the show and the reason that it started to take off and then succeeded for as long as it did was eventually they were able to convince the powers that be that they didn't want to do that show that way and that they should just be allowed to, you know, after they give their written review, whoever is giving the written, you know, like the review part of any segment, that the rest should be unscripted and whenever possible, it should be the first take and it should be the first time that they're hearing each other's opinions. And so what you get is that, again, that authentic reaction. So if you're watching an episode um, from within, you know, like the after the first couple of years, it's every episode is like this. It's like when you see one of them reacting like kind of in shock, in dismay, in disbelief, because, you know, uh, Roger gave top and a half a thumbs up review. That's because Gene Siskel is genuinely shocked 
that that is his review of that movie. He, you know, they did not go into that. He did not go into it knowing what Roger was going to say. And he reacted authentically to that, uh, that surprisingly positive review. And that was how they approached it. And yeah, it, it, you would think, well, it's hard to do like a first, you know, they, they called it a doing a first take show. They would try to do the whole show as best they could without redoing anything. And eventually they got to the point where they pretty much could do like a, a whole show in about 30 minutes. Like they got good enough that they could do it. And, you know, that's it's the opposite of, you know, somebody like a Kubrick or a David Fincher where they... <laughs> You know, the secret is apparently doing 60 takes of something, you know, for whatever reason. They believe that that uh, yields the best results. And look, I mean, I love Stanley Kubrick and David Fincher's movies, so they maybe they were on to something. But that didn't work for Siskel and Ebert. They right. felt like their, their, that authenticity came from doing it, doing it the first time. And if it was a little imperfect, if someone flubbed a little... Or, you know, there was a creak if somebody moved in their chair and it made a noise. Who cared if the debate was good and real? That was that was what stayed in the show. Yeah, because that's what again, back to that eavesdropping thing. When you tell your friend to go see a movie that you love and then your friend says to you, I don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't that great. Your first reaction is not as a film guy is not really. Um, can you please tell me your reasons or let's discuss it? You just start saying, what are you talking about? How could how could you possibly endorse cop and a half or, or whatever it is? Yeah, exactly. No, it's true. And yeah. and and yeah, and, and that was a big reason why the show worked. So. They start to get, they start to become true celebrities where even people that aren't into film criticism or into movies necessarily know who they are. And you have a, a great surprise in the book. You have a chapter on David Letterman and on Late Night, which was very nostalgic. It reminded me of how great Late Night was and why we all loved it so much. And you talk about them as as talk show guests. And what was it that people like Letterman loved about, and you know, we, he talked about the tonight, tonight Show as well. Why were they such great guests for Late Night TV and for talk shows in general? Uh, well, again, I think it's 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 the same quality of authenticity, um, bluntness, honesty, whatever you want to call it, just expressed kind of in a different way and in a different venue. I mean, I think the reason that they stood out on uh, really all talk shows um, was, you know, when you think about these shows, um, you know, like there's certain words like that I would use to describe them, which is like. Um, you know, funny sometimes, but also like very like pleasant, cheerful, everyone's happy and smiling. Everyone's, you know, happy to be there, happy to be talking about whatever they're there to promote. Everything that they're they've made is is wonderful. It's a great new movie. You should go see it. You should go re buy my book. You should go read, you know, this. You should go watch my TV show, whatever it is. Everyone is happy and smiling. And into this universe of sort of like plastic sunshine <laughs> come Siskel and Ebert, who, you know, it was not unusual for them to be like the second guests on Letterman or The Tonight Show and to follow whoever the first guest was by saying, oh, their movie isn't that good. You shouldn't go see it. We've seen it already. It's bad. Don't go see it. It's bad. It's a bad movie. Sometimes they would say these things with the, you know, on The Tonight Show, you know, they had that long couch. So whoever was, you know, the first guest would just hang around. You know, the, the Tonight Show tradition was, you know, you sit on the couch while whoever else comes out and you kind of kibitz with Johnny and with Ed McMahon. And 
So, uh, you know, a, a movie star would be there promoting their movie. Then they'd go sit down on the couch and Gene and Roger would come out and say to their faces, uh, their movie is bad. And the last movie you made was bad, too. Uh, what's happened to your career? Why are you doing these terrible movies? Like they brought this honesty and bluntness and straight talk that was kind of unheard of on those shows then and now. And so that was what made them stand out. That was one of the things anyway. Yeah. Um, it also helped that, you know, there was, I, I, they had a lot of, you know, they also had the fact that there were two of them, you know, and they could bounce off each other and they would give each other as much grief as they gave the, those other guests and movie stars. You know, if one told a story and it bombed, the other one would go, yeah, great story, Roger. Way to go, Gene. That really killed. You know, they, they could kind of turn any moment that didn't work to their advantage because they would, you know, turn on each other. And that would make for great TV. They would argue. They would bicker. Um, and they also didn't take themselves super seriously. So especially with Letterman, they would do sketches. They did comedy bits. They would do whatever he kind of asked them to do. They would make fake commercials. They would travel with him in a van around New Jersey, knocking on doors and like helping people clean their gutters or playing basketball with them. You know, they were very like um, comfortable in that role as these sort of like kooky uh, late night talk show celebrities. Um, they excelled at it. So yeah, they it it was a very important part of of their success. It and it it broadened their appeal. I think people who weren't necessarily inclined to go watch a show about movie reviews would see them on these shows, and they were always great. And then the next time they might see the show flipping around the channel, say, "Oh, there's their that those are those guys I saw on on Carson last night. Let me watch their show." I think that absolutely was a big part of their appeal because people would start to tune in to the show for them, not just to see the movies, but to see them arguing more. What are some of your favorite, I'm sure you have some favorite Siskel and Ebert moments from all the research you've done and all the videos you've seen. Are there any specific things that any movies they argue about that you kind of like, that's a great one or, or just favorite moments from their careers? Well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's so many. And I did uh, for the book, I, I watched hundreds and hundreds of episodes, as many as I could find and lots and lots of talk show appearances and it was not a chore. It was very, very fun to do. It was really the best part of the book was just revisiting and and re and rediscovering or watching for the first time all of these amazing um hours of TV. It was it was really, really fun. Um a lot of the famous, you know, reviews are great, you know, like they're famous maybe being relative at this point, but if you're a fan of uh, of Siskel and Ebert, or, you know, even if you just are online on social media, some of these clips tend to go viral, like them fighting over, you know, uh, Full Metal Jacket and Benji the Hunted or uh, stuff like that. I mean, all of the ones that go viral go viral for yeah. a reason because Baby's they're very... Out. <laughs> yeah, or Cop and a Half, which I mentioned before. Um, they're all great. I mean, I think the ones that for me that really I really enjoyed doing the research was like when it would be a movie I'd never even heard of, a movie that's totally like fallen off the face of the earth, that has no sort of lasting cultural legacy. But then the review will be really entertaining. Like there's this uh, review that I showed at a couple of, you know, when I would do uh, signings or talks in movie theaters with the book and people would ask me to bring clips, like one that I showed a couple of times uh, because 
uh, to this day, no one I've shown the, the the clip to had ever seen the movie, and I don't think most people had even heard of it, was this kid's movie called Alaska, which is about a couple of kids whose dad is like a cargo pilot. He goes, his plane goes down in the wilderness and they go searching for him and they befriend a polar cub, <laughs> a polar bear cub. I actually recently watched the movie because I had shown the clip so many times I felt I have to now see this movie and it's not very good. But the review is hilarious and we and funny and like they get really intensely heated arguing about Alaska and they debate what makes a good movie. Um, it's it, it, they, you know, they talk about the the movie itself, but it, it it is this launching pad for a debate over like what makes a good children's film and how do we determine what is a good movie and a bad movie and is a good movie good if it if it uh, achieves its goals if those goals are essentially very minor and small like if it's just trying to be a dumb kids movie and it succeeds. Is that a thumbs up movie or is it a thumbs up movie only if it appeals to every audience everywhere and achieves a certain level of quality that can be compared to great movies? Is that make it worthwhile? And uh, that's kind of what their review of Alaska becomes in between them yelling at each other because they get annoyed with each other for giving this movie one person. And I suppose I shouldn't spoil it, but one gives it a thumbs up and one gives it a thumbs down. So uh, it's a fun one to go look up. Uh, and there's lots of examples like that of movies you've never heard of. I had never heard of. No one's ever heard of, you know, decades later, but that inspire these wonderful debates. It's like you could never predict what was going to spark a really good conversation on the show, which was another reason why people tuned in. It wasn't, it wasn't always, well, oh, there's a, you know, there's a big new movie, you know, they're reviewing Titanic. I got to see their review of Titanic. The other four reviews on that show might be just as entertaining or insightful or interesting, even though the movies themselves might not be of that level. It didn't matter if the movie was, uh, a masterpiece for them to have a very insightful, interesting, entertaining review of it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to the end. Let's let's talk about you know the deaths of Gene Siskel and later Roger Ebert and you know the attempts to fill the void each one left. Siskel died first, and then there were attempts to kind of like replace him. You know that they had very very success with that, and then eventually Roger Ebert passed away. But can you can you talk briefly about you know each of their each of their deaths and, and how they, they tried to cope with them? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, Gene Siskel died a very young man, like 53 years old in 1999. Um, in 98, he sort of suddenly came down with these terrible, terrible headaches and went to the doctor. And essentially, although he never told anyone until really until after he passed away a year later, just about, um, you know, he had brain cancer. Um, but basically hid the severity of what he was going through and just tried to work through it and kept showing up to work even as um, his condition deteriorated and he was being treated for it um, to the point that, you know, basically the last time he came to film an episode uh, of Siskel and Ebert in early 1999, really just a, a couple of weeks before he passed away, um, after they shot this final episode, which no one at the time realized would be his last episode, you know, he claimed um, and they released a, a, a statement to this effect that, oh, I'm going to take the rest of the year off. I'm going to recuperate 
Um, and I'll be back in the fall with, for the new season and I'll be better then. And uh, supposedly, according to, again, to Roger's widow, Chaz, like they really thought that was the truth. And they didn't realize until just before he passed away that he really was that ill, that he was deathly, um, deathly ill. And yeah, I mean, the show continued without him. Um, there were guest hosts for a while. And then Richard Roper became the permanent host for a few years. Um, and then unfortunately, yeah, Roger got ill, um, and his illness was sort of much more protracted. And for a while he was able to keep doing the show. Um, he kept having different issues, also cancer, but sort of different, you know, his jaw, his salivary gland. And then, um, it basically just, it sort of was like an accumulation of illnesses where, uh, essentially it, it, it wore his, uh, his body down so much that, um horrible incident where you know, he lost his feet essentially you know it's kind of the short version of the story and um that kind of ended his on-screen participation with the show and then yeah disney which was the distributors of the show at the time they kept they kept the show on for a few more years without him and then after they ended the show uh ebert uh and Chaz ebert um tried to do their own version of the show where they were kind of the producers but not necessarily the on-camera hosts. Um, and that lasted for a year. And when that show ended, that was kind of the end of of the show. And there have been some attempts to kind of copy the format. Um, and none in the world of movies have been very successful. Certainly there are other shows like it on, on cable TV and different genres of talk. But there isn't really a Siskel and Ebert of movies these days, at least not on, on, on network or cable television. You know, there certainly are podcasts, there's YouTube channels, um, where there's, again, that idea of a dialogue about movies, certainly a lot, very alive and very well, but the, the specific kind of format that they had, the more combative energy, um, because a lot, most podcasts, most YouTube channels, you know, they start people who like each other, friends who want to be talking to one another. They choose to make things together. Again, it's like Siskel and Ebert did not choose to do this show together. They were chosen to do the show together. And that makes a big difference. So like sort of the specific energy of the show has kind of gone away. But, you know, we have all these other things that are sort of similar and in some ways are are, are better than, you know. Um, but certainly are, are different. So let's end with a quotation of yours from the book to get your reaction. Uh, this is from your book. Late in the book, you say this, quote, just as sneak previews broke ground on television in the 1970s by presenting honest and unfiltered discussion in a world of canned debate, internet critics have evolved the notion of critical discussion for a new era and new mediums, but they all share common roots in Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what we were just talking about. I right. mean, you can see the influence of Siskel and Ebert everywhere, or certainly I think uh, you can, um, you know, in things like podcasts and YouTube channels and, uh, you know, even, you know, and and some people do sort of, you know, back and forth pieces, even, you know, text, text pieces. Uh, like that, you know, round tables or, you know, I was just reading some of like the Slate Movie Club where they have a, you know, great critics kind of bouncing things back and forth. Um, and I feel like almost all of that energy can get traced back to that simple innovation from the early days of Siskel and Ebert. 
And again, it is they are all in various ways different because, like I said, you know, most of these people are choosing <laughs> choosing to work together. They like each other. I, you know, I, if if there's a podcast out there, uh, and I listen to a bunch of movie podcasts and other kinds of podcasts. If there's a if there's a movie podcast out there that's two guys who hate each other talking about movies each week, I don't know about it. Uh, if there is, someone can tell me, and I would I would be interested to hear it. Maybe there's, and maybe there should be that show. I don't know, but that is sort of the thing that's missing from most of the very good, I would say, sort of spiritual successors to that Siskel and Ebert model. Is that the spirit of it is a little more collegial, a little more you know friendly, um, and the people there tend to enjoy one another's company more, and they don't seem to be competing as much. And the shows are also longer, which is generally a good thing. You know, I mean, Siskel and Ebert, for all the wonderful things about it, unless they were doing a special episode about just one movie, which they or one director. I mean, and they did do that sometimes. The standard episode of the show was, you know, 22 to 28 minutes, and it was four or maybe even five reviews crammed into that amount of time. And there's there's no podcast today that reviews five movies in a half an hour. If anything, they're one review, and maybe it's one hour or two hours or three hours, all about one single movie. And so the the level of depth can be much greater now than Siskel and Ebert ever were allowed to be. And I think if they were around today, I think they would have probably relished the uh, the chance to do something like that, to debate a movie for an hour or two or three. Um, but they didn't really have that. Um, so, yeah, it's a different world, in some ways better, in some ways worse, uh, but certainly, certainly different. Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever is available everywhere. If you love Siskel and Ebert, like I did, certainly like Matt Singer does, you do not want to miss this book. Matt Singer, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this book. It was my pleasure. I'm always, always happy to have any excuse to talk about Siskel and Ebert. So 